Welcome back, all you Bills, Phils, Nannies, and Does out there to the Mount Goatmore Cliff Dive Podcast. Podcast, because I'm from Boston. The Mount Goatmore Cliff Dive Podcast, where week in and week out we get together and we talk about greatness. We discuss what it means to be the greatest of all time, and we pick our four goats to put on our Mount Goatmores. This week, it's just me and Cam. But we're getting together once again, doing adult stuff, having a podcast. And this week, we have a pretty fun topic for you. But first off, Cam, how are you doing this week, bro? Matt Damon. <laughs> no, I, I'm doing all right. Uh, I'm drinking a pumpkin beer. I don't think Cody realized this. I'm actually, I'm pretty sure. Oh, Oktoberfest. There we go. Oktoberfest. I'm drinking this pumpkin beer for a reason. Now it is September, but imagine it's not. Imagine it's a different month, a later month. October. October is a spooky month where you drink pumpkin spice things and Whoa. pumpkin beers and you make scary podcasts. So consider this, you build Phil's nannies and Doe's introduction to Spooky season 2024, Goat Moore style. Let's go. Spooky season and the the master of segues getting us back on topic from my Boston slip early in the podcast. <laughs> this episode, it is spooky season. We are diving into Halloween season. And this episode, we're talking about monsters. We're talking about the things that scare you at night. But mostly the things that if you want to be a hero, you have to defeat. We're talking very specific monsters. The monsters that fight us in our D&D campaigns, Dungeons and Dragons. If nobody has played Dungeons and Dragons, we feel for you. I think everybody should give it a shot. It's a fun little game. We love playing it. I think its popularity has risen with the likes of Critical Role in this Dungeons and Dragons movie that recently came out. But we are talking about the greatest monsters to ever come from Dungeons and Dragons. Did you get to see the movie? I did. I liked it a lot. Me too, man. It, we watched it again a couple weeks ago and it still held up really well. Yeah, I've I've watched it twice. I I was really impressed. We probably need to talk about that offline though because... Good point. We could go down a rabbit hole because it was pretty good. It was very good. Yeah, man. Dungeons and Dragons. So I struggled with this list, not to come up with monsters, but to be original because some of the great monsters are just really, really good. It's just like, this is the great monster. Yeah. This is the great monster. This is the great monster. And this is the great monster. I do have a list. Uh, but yeah, D&D. If you guys haven't tried it, I would certainly try it or watch either Critical Role or The Adventure Zone, listen to that, or watch some uh, version of people playing it and see if it's for you. It's a great way, it's a great way to spend time with friends, to storytell with them, to have a good time. LaRon didn't love it, but I do think it's worth it to try for most people, even if you don't end up liking it. And Right now, I want to just say Matthew Goatmore is over in Europe, so unfortunately we can't get Matthew Goatmore on this episode, but he is our dungeon master. And man, we should have got him on this episode, but hopefully he's doing well over there across the pond in Middle Earth. 
if you're listening to this mess, we appreciate you. The best DM. I'm DMing now, and he's definitely better than I am right now, so I can't even like say anything against it. The best DM. He's good. Cheers. Cheers. He's coming back. He's coming back. All right, so this is from studyfinds.org. I've never heard of them before. Best Dungeons and Dragon Monsters. Top five most iconic creatures according to experts. Number five, the Owlbear. Number four, the Tarask. Mm. Strikes fear in the heart of all adventurers. Yeah, I hadn't heard of the Tarask before this, but it kept oh, coming. you hadn't? Yeah, I hadn't. Oh, I, I definitely had heard of it, but yeah, it's pretty pretty devastating. Matthew hasn't thrown that at us yet. I don't think that we would we'd definitely die if we crossed Tarask right now. I mean, it sounds like you die even at level 20. Yeah, I mean, we, we almost died to, to mindless golems. A Tarask would absolutely wipe the floor with us. Yeah. Matthew, don't put a Tarask at us. Until we get to level 20. Unless, Give us three years of playing first. Yeah. It might be more than three to level 20. 20 is, man. Oh, I did. Well, let's move on. Number <laughs> <laughs> number three, the Aboleth. Number two, the Beholder. Yeah. the Well, so the Aboleth, isn't that um a mind flare? Or is it more specific than that? It's more specific. It actually looks really interesting. It's... This it's has like tendrils and it's similar to a lot of those ones where it has like mind. Uh it, it feels like a raw version of a mind flare almost. I'll show yeah. you a, a screen of No, it. I I know what it looks like. It's like Cthulhu esque. Oh no, no, no. I, I was thinking of something way different. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like more like um for our listeners who don't know, it's like Kind of like the giant wormy monster from Gardens of the Galaxy, except I think that it has more psych, like psych. Um, what's the word to control psychic. people's minds? Psychic, psychic, psychic abilities. So the way that it's described on this Forgotten Realms wiki page is a bizarre eel with long tubular bodies, as well as a tail at one end and two fins near the head and another along the back. Their mouths were lamprey-like, filled with serrated, jawless teeth. And that's a pretty good description of what we're looking at. Mm -hmm. uh, number one was Tiamat. Is that how you say it? That's how I say it. Yeah. Tiamat. Yeah. I mean, we didn't talk about it. I don't know if we're going to do uh, Goat Above. I was sort of thinking Tiamat should be. I think Tiamat above. Fair goat above. Yeah, I actually did message. I think I thought I did. Oh, I might I might not have seen it then. Yeah, I think I messaged the group and said Tiamat goat above. Oh, okay. Well, I agree. <laughs> I, I was I was thinking Tiamat goat above as well. I mean, Tiamat is the chromatic dragon mama. She has, what is it, five or six heads of all the different types of chromatic dragons. And there are two types of dragons. There's the chromatic ones, which are colored dragons. So red or black or white or is it tan, maybe? There's a bunch of different types. And oh. 
gold, yeah, gold, of course. And then there are the metallic dragons, which are like good guys, and they worship whatever the good metallic dragon's name, Bahamut, maybe. Yeah. Anyway, well, she's chromatic dragons: black, blue, green, red, white, and then uh, gold would be. I only say that because I put gold in the chromatic, but gold's a metal dragon. Gotcha. Obviously. But yeah, super powerful. You can never beat her forever. Kind of like Vecna. And just a great example of really high level material and encounters. If you ever get to the point where you can fight Tiamat, even if you're like one of the most powerful characters in the in a campaign, you probably will still lose because she is more than powerful enough to total player kill an entire squad, uh, an entire party. And just the design is great. You've seen designs like this in other things. It's kind of the idea of the Hydra, but turned to be more draconic-like as opposed to serpentine. To me, it's like, what's the greatest uh, monsters in Dungeons & Dragons? I just think Goat Above needs to be a dragon. It's in the name. Yeah. And um, the, the goddess dragon Tiamat what I sort of like about Dungeons and Dragons types monsters is for the most part, historically, even when they're using classic archetypes of monsters, they at least put their own sort of Dungeons and Dragons spin on it. And Tiamat to me is the perfect example of this, of taking not just dragon um, lore and not just Hydra lore. But Tiamat in our real world is an old Mesopotamian sea goddess. Um, And they've used a little bit of that lore to create their own sort of god of dragons or goddess of dragons. And so I, I really like the idea of pulling together all of these different stories that we have in our real world to build their world. Um, Early D and D I don't think world building was, as important they built would build games but now you have like so much lore with a hundred different gods and different religions and and tiamat is right there at the top of them as one of the most important goddesses or or like sort of religious figures but she is also no doubt a battleable um battleable dragon monster in the game I I love the idea of having like the different heads be different colors of the different chromatic dragons. Um but yeah, it's it's the the greatest dragon in a game named Dungeons and Dragons. I think for that and that alone, she should be the goat above. So that that's sort of my take on Tiamat. And I suppose Bahamut is a strong but Bahamas a good guy, and when we talk about D&D monsters, it's much more interesting the ones that we're fighting. Yeah. So for my first pick, you kind of mentioned something that I wanted to talk about. It's that the early D&D games were much different. Like mm-hmm. the first editions were you were weak, you were expected to die and have to make a new character, and it was very much about crawling through these dungeons. And one of the creatures that really took advantage of that early on the layout of Dungeons and Dragons, the the grids, was the gelatinous cube. Mm -hmm. And the gelatinous cube is exactly 10 feet tall, 
and 10 feet wide, which just happens to be the typical size of a dungeon corridor. And the gelatinous cube is also almost invisible. And so, like, from a perception standpoint, if you're looking at it, you're lucky to see it if, say, it has coins suspended in it. I might make a player roll a 17 or something to see it if I'm having them roll perception. And if they don't, they're just going to roll into it and get stuck in it. And since it, and they have to do a strength saving check. What it what it is, what it comes down to is the idea of the ooze. The ooze is one of the creatures that you're most likely to find in dungeons. And they're just oozes of some type of matter that are animated for one per for one reason or another. Um, and the gelatinous cube is the most interesting ooze, in my opinion, because of that meta aspect of it perfectly fitting the corridor and requiring you, if you want to get through the dungeon, to bypass it, as opposed to being able to, say, a yellow ooze, you can get away from it because it can only go 10 feet at a time. I think that's really cool. I also think the idea of, like, there's the meta idea of, like, how do we explain all of these clean dungeons? You know, there's there may be swords and stuff, but these skeletons don't have flesh on them. How did it perfectly get scraped clean? Well, the gelatinous cube doesn't eat the, or it doesn't uh, decay the the bones themselves. Stuff like that, I think, is really really fun. This is maybe the most meta creature, but I think it's a great example of a low level type monster, like the opposite end of Tiamat, and one of the most iconic D and D monsters that actually did appear in the movie, and many of the ones that I'm going to talk about appeared in the movie. So. Yeah, I love it. Um, so my first pick is going to be one just like it, but a little bit different. But we have the same ideas going forward. Um, I tried to keep this list as Dungeons and Dragons specific as possible. I know Cam mentioned it too. Um, obviously, things like Minotaurs, Centaurs, these um, epic monsters from religions and mythologies across the world all inevitably end up in Dungeons and Dragons. But there are specific things in pop culture, video game culture, um, monster culture that Dungeons and Dragons uh, creators specifically invented for the aspect of this board playing game, the gelatinous cube is one of the best examples, like Cam said, um, because it totally fits the board that you're supposed to play on. It was made specifically for this game. The other one that I think was made specifically for this game, uh, invented by Gary Gygax, the one of the pioneers of Dungeons and Dragons, and then became a staple in fantasy culture and video game culture afterwards is the mimic. The mimic was specifically designed with this game in mind to, again, in a very, very meta way that ended up being sort of adopted by uh, nerd culture moving forward. But it's a way of tricking and punishing greedy players you're in this game, you can obviously pick locks and open chests. And as you go through the dungeon, you can loot and open these chests and find cool new things. The mimic is a monster that looks like a chest. And when the adventurer tries to open it, it opens the top and the chest is now a giant mouth with 
huge teeth and a huge tongue and it attacks you on sight um this is a way of early dungeons and dragons making upping the fear factor and the anticipation where in a very bloodborne um or dark souls way you can't turn a corner and feel safe when you're in these dungeons everything feels like it's out to get you there might be a booby trap anywhere like cam said you're sort of supposed to die as you fight this dungeon or solve this dungeon and the mimics is one of the greatest examples of this that i know of and like i said it's been used across pop culture in different monster card games like Yu-Gi-Oh, like pokemon now um and different video games just like the dark souls games any type of fantasy game has a mimic where it's always the same thing it's a chest that you go and you try to open up and then you're attacked by a monster that is actually pretending to be a chest i think it's genius it's especially genius for the makeup of dungeons and dragons and trying to invent this game where you dungeon crawl and you loot and it creates a jump scare that is very much hard to replicate um in in Dungeons and Dragons, you open a chest thinking that you're going to get loot and now you're attacked and you have damage and you have to fight all this. Uh, I mean, I certainly know in the Dark Souls series, these mimics are so scary. Like, it, you know, you'll open 10 chests in a row and forget about them. And then your next one, you immediately attack. Even if you're fully powered up, it gets me every single time because you just don't think about it. Yeah, mimics on my list, too. Mimic is great, like talking about video games, of course, Dark Souls, Final Fantasy, so many different video games, even, you know, Pokemon. That's essentially what Electrode is in the original uh, power plant. It's a mimic. The stupid mushroom Pokemon in Gen 5 are mimics. The idea of the mimic was a perfect idea, and it works as like an idea for how to reward and uh, challenge the player. It takes our desire for rewards and messes with it, but they don't just become chess. Chess is by far one of the best ways to use it, but in the campaign I'm running, I just had one that was a uh, whiskey barrel or a mushroom wine barrel. And my one of my characters, I don't remember why, or one of my players decided he wanted to knock on all the the wine barrels and he knocked on one and his hand got stuck because they're not just these toothy things. They're sticky too in D and D. So they have this adhesive and you have to make a strength saving throw to get away from it. Meanwhile, it's trying to chomp you, trying to hit you with its pseudopods. And it became a big ordeal. It was a lot of fun for me and a lot of fun for the players. They can be doors. They can be carpets. They can be mostly wood type objects. What's scarier than a toilet seat mimic <laughs> name it i can't name it and be nothing a... nothing a bidet mimic <laughs> oh gross <laughs> <laughs> that's tough <laughs> but yes i mean it's it's a treasure to the game of dnd ironically yeah that... second pick, so so for my second pick Again, I tried to think of something that D&D originated that I, I've never thought of before. 
um, that D&D showed me that when I looked it up, it doesn't really have ties to any sort of um, mythology on Earth. And some people hate it. I actually love it. But it's the owl bear. Nice. The owl bear is so D and D to me. I think it's such a cool morph of an animal. You get these sort of fantasy animal hybrids all the time, and I think that a lot of them aren't very good. I I think that a lot of times you'll get a hybrid that literally looks like you take the top off off of animal and put it on top of the bottom of another animal. Um, very seldomly do these mix of animals equal a a greater thing that could honestly like exist in an in another reality. Griffins are one of the most perfect examples of a really good version of this. But I think Albear is top notch example of this mixing two real world animals to get an animal that could exist on another plane. Um there's just something about the shape of an owl and the shape of a bear that meshes really well. Um, if anybody hasn't played, the owl bear has essentially got the body of a bear with the head of an owl. Um, but all depictions of it that I've seen actually look reasonably understandable and fluid. And I think that it's a really cool idea. I Again, I think that owls and bears actually have pretty similar color palettes and um structures that it makes sense in my mind it doesn't really break my brain very much thinking about it and i think that it's a cool way of making a more grounding type fantasy animal um a lot of times these fantasy animals are so out there that they almost break your reality and this is a very ground like you could imagine coming across this or like imagine somebody has never seen a moose before or doesn't know moose exist and then comes across it in the wild and is like, what the heck is that? I could imagine going to another country, not knowing owlbears are real and coming across it in the wild and being like, what? the? I didn't know that this was real. And it, it sort of has that feel to me that it grounds the adventure in a little more reality, especially than something like a beholder, which is so like abstract that sometimes it breaks my my imagination so to me it like it looks like a divergent evolution yeah. it's called an owl bear because it's the shape of a bear but it just looks like a divergent evolution of an owl like if the birds that were say like the the emu or what's that other big bird ostrich an ostrich if they just kept getting bigger and bigger and you know evolved into something vaguely bear like it's really cool it is it's the obvious pick for this type of monster that's kind of like you said grounded like you could imagine this in our world as far as a monster that was more naturalistic in a way it's not what i went with but it is on my honorable mention the one that i went with was more panther like and a panther with six legs and tentacles and I just think it's so cool. I didn't really know about it until the D&D movie. And after I watched it, I was like, what is this stu- this crazy freaking thing? And I've just fallen in love with it and cannot wait to introduce it in the campaign that I'm running right now. It is the Displacer Beast. 
it is the gift that keeps on giving more than to me any of the monsters I'm going to talk about. So let me talk about the Displacer Beast. Like I said, it's six-legged Black Panther with tentacles that can, and it has a limited supernatural ability to project duplicates of itself to avoid being attacked. If you watched the D&D movie, you saw it use this ability to such great effect in a, in a maze where it would put out its duplicates, the player would attack it, go through the duplicate in confusion, and then be attacked by the displacer beast and killed, which is just such an awesome idea. The way that manifests in a Dungeons & Dragons game is just you have disadvantage when you're attacking it. Uh, but it also has an ability that makes it great at saving throws at the same time, which what that means is like if you try to use, say, a lightning attack that does its damage in an area and everything has to do a, a dexterity saving throw to avoid it, it has advantage against it because, again, you don't quite know where it's at. It's such a, it's magical. It feels like the type of creature that might exist in a magical world. When I run the campaign, the idea that I love to sort of, there's two, there's, of course, and this isn't just me, but when you're making conflict, it's man versus man or human versus human. And there's also like human versus wild and human versus the things above us. And I really love the human versus wild thing. I think that that's like for something like D&D where it's dragons, where dragons are like these peak creatures that are here to, to get us. And, you know, you're trying to build a society against these other types of creatures. I love the idea of all these interesting magical beings littering our world and having it out for us when we come into their territory. And the Displacer Beast is just awesome from a DM's perspective in creating this challenge for players. And when they beat them, they feel so like as a player, if you're fighting a Displacer Beast and you win, you feel like you've really accomplished something. That's something that in video games and in D&D and in life just makes things more, you can savor things a lot more when that's what happens. The last thing that to me makes the Displacer Beast so great is that like when you beat it, that's not the end of it. If you have somebody that can do it, you can, or, or you can get to an NPC, you can turn its coat to a Displacer coat or a coat of displacement, which is a, which is a great freaking object. And there are NPCs that will buy its eyes and use them as a good luck charm. So it's literally just the gift that keeps on giving. I love the beast. I love the displacer beast too. I think one thing that you didn't touch on that I I really like is this idea of the fey wild or like the fairy wild, um, a wilderness from the fey realm or like a fairy realm that is like our like our world but very different it's almost like a alice in wonderland type crazy other world and the displacer beast to me it lives very naturally in that idea of this black cat with tentacles that can pop in and out of existence it where a lot of like i think there are a lot of fantasy writings that fall short to me in the way that they describe like a fey wild. Um, I think of it as like really crazy and out there and twisted version of our reality. And this displacer beast is a really good example to me of the way to take that idea and personify it 
because we have things like panthers and cats. And in our world, they're also very sneaky. They also sneak up on you. They're silent. They're killers. But in the Feywild, it's like that, but ramped up to a million because they can now change colors, turn invisible, make other versions of themselves pop in and out of existence. And that's the sort of magic that I like from fantasy in general, but D&D more specifically. That's a very good point. Yeah, I didn't touch on that, but part of just the setting of D&D is more like the Forgotten Realms. Yeah. Uh, whatever the regular world is is great, or the Sword Coast is where I've, we've mostly in our time as players have been, but the Feywilds and like the Underdark are these settings that elevate the material by allowing the type of creatures that can really amaze to feel natural. Uh, they're not natural to us, but they're natural to these weird places. But that is my third pick. So for my third pick, I want to take a mythology that D&D took something that existed in the real world mythology. And I don't actually remember where this myth comes from, what cultural religion it comes from, but it's one that D&D takes the idea from the real world and then totally changes it a hundred percent into something that doesn't even remotely look like what the original uh, mythology was. And that's the Knoll. Um, so the original myth of a Knoll, it's essentially just like a ghost or like a poltergeist. Um, it doesn't have any ties to like animals or, or monsters really. It's just an old world type ghost that, brings bad luck and haunts you. Um, and again, forgive me, I, I forget which what culture this comes from. But what D&D did is they took this idea of this sort of bad luck creature and personified it in a way that they needed it. And they essentially made a hyena werewolf from the knoll. And to me, it's like, the coolest version of a werewolf that that I've ever seen because of how believable it is. It's essentially like, um, what are the creatures in uh, Wheel of Time? The Trolloc. Yeah, Trolloc. Yeah, T R O L L C. So it's essentially what I think of like as a Trolloc, or like even Lord of the Rings with like their version of um of orcs um it's sort of this creation of a mass army of bad guys that has this evil root to them and um i think hyena is a perfect animal to use for this i love hyenas they're not evil in real life but man, they make good villains. Like if you look at Lion King and look at how menacing and crazy hyenas are, or even the Joker having <laughs> hyenas as its pets, they make really good villains because they are scary and pack animals and have this crazy laugh type bark and howl and a bite force that just crushes bones 
it just makes for such a good fightable army character. And I think where I do really love this idea of werewolves in fantasy settings, it gets lost on me. This idea of turning back and forth into a wolf or an animal. I much rather prefer these things that are their own creation and exist in their like own race and reality. And so this like werewolf type knoll, which is like a hyena werewolf human, um, but it doesn't turn back and forth into a human. It's just to me a perfect creation if you want like an army of bad guys, or if you like want a guard like guarding a castle, but they're probably um corrupt. Like it, it's it's a really cool use of a lot of different motifs that exist in our real world, but pulled together in a very D and D specific way. Yeah, the knolls are really cool. The first time I came across them was Critical Role. Shout out to Critical Role once again. I believe, or was yeah, it was Critical Role. They fought knolls at one point. And hyena creatures are just, they're so easy to expound upon. I didn't know that mythology behind them, but the laughter of a hyena is such a powerful tool for being a DM and building characters and building encounters and making creatures that are memorable. Uh, I think you're right that like it's there's something about it that's a little more appealing than having to wait for the full moon for the werewolf. So yeah, great pick. Um, and that's your third one. This is my last one. You had a, a it, I went with the Beholder. I'll just go ahead and say it. I think the Beholder is awesome. It's an eye creature with eyes as hair. So it's not based on anything in mythology. We've talked about that. This is one of the original designs. It's a little silly, but it's also like this is the creature that's on the monster manual for 5e. This is one of the very iconic original D&D creations. Uh, it's been just like the mimic other types of games and, uh, you know, Pathfinder and other mediums of storytelling have used it but what makes it so great for me is that it really provides a challenging uh encounter for any group of players because it has the anti-magic cone in its eye it has the six other eyeballs with different abilities it can disintegrate you if you aren't careful and you know just kill one of your players forever and there are all these variations that you can bring in earlier or later on to continue using it. I like this, like I see them as like mafia bosses. They hate people, they hate each other, they are super racist. What they are to me is the DD version of Daleks. They're just like Daleks. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's awesome. So uh as one of the original creatures. As one that was on every list, because I, I really didn't go far away from the list in this one. I think beholders are great. Uh, I think it's fair to think they're silly. I just, I, they definitely work for me. And wasn't it? No. You, so when I ran the campaign or the one shot for you all last year, there were two optional bosses and you ended up fighting the dragon, but it would have been a beholder otherwise. And that would have been really, really fun. The Beholder is silly to me, I, I must admit. And, you know, I'll also admit this. Daleks are silly silly to me. I I can't really get past either one of their designs. 
Um, I think that they're very, very silly. That being said, Beholder very much deserves to be on this list. Just like Cam said, it is the face of the monster manual. Um, and it is iconic. I just, the design of it is one of those designs that really breaks my imagination. Um, I like the things that they bring, but it's like Modoc or something, you know, there's just these certain designs in these fantasy worlds or superhero worlds that I look at and I'm like, that is so silly. And Dalek's a perfect example. I totally agree. And I'm not saying that it's even bad to have them because you can't really have Doctor Who without Daleks. They're so important. But as Doctor Who has gone more and more into the modern world, um, Daleks feel less and less like you can take them serious. And, you know, it's just... I think that this is something that me me and Cam often our brain splits. Design is a very important thing to me. Like seeing something as believable is just as important in storytelling to me as the the actual impact that it has. And so I just as much as I do think Beholders is on my honorable mention. It's it's obvious to put on the list. Um, my actual final pick is Mind Flares because it's, to me, a more believable version of what the Beholder kind of brings oh, you. I guess I would say this. The Beholder is less naturalistic. than right. the, It's not something that we can readily imagine as appearing in our world. But one thing that I think it really has going for it, and I didn't mention, but I did want to mention real quick is that like it's very easy to describe and there are different ways you can approach playing D&D and for a lot of players especially young players without parents flushing cash the theater of the mind is what you do mm-hmm. you could maybe have you know diced as the monsters and players you might get a couple figures you'll write you'll have grids so you write your own maps but everything else you're imagining it in your head and describing the beyonder or the beholder describing the beholder is is really really easy in that sense it's a giant monster its skin is nasty and scaly it has a big eye it's round a big eye in the center of its head and tentacles coming out of its head with smaller eyes that are pointed directly at you roll for initiative i think that really works for the game itself i can understand what you mean about because it it's really not naturalistic. It's not something that we can imagine. If there was like a live action D&D show, it's hard to imagine like, or even just the movie again, it's hard to imagine the Beholder appearing. But well, I like it. Uh, and it's not even the not naturalistic thing. It's also not sci-fi enough for me to be able to imagine. Like it has such a quality of a kid's drawing, which to your point, it's great. And I, I think it's a very useful tool for D&D. But there, I have a lot of examples of stuff that I even, things that I hold dearly and think are amazing, like the homunculus in the jar in uh, Full Metal Alchemist is silly to me. The little eyeball shadow. That's silly. That That's hard. It takes a really grounded 
narrative and almost almost destroys it for me um just these things with one big eye and a big mouth across a circle shape i can't get over the fact that they're all probably partly inspired by the song flying purple people eaters <laughs> like it, i just when i think of the one wing one eye flying purple people eater it's just like all of these things that have this one big eye and this mouth that stretches across the face and so that that's the only reason why it's silly to me is that even for like something that is otherworldly and i can get behind that argument is that it's something that like you know cthulhu mythos type thing our mind can't imagine it it's like I would think that my mind could come up with something scarier than that. Um, but I've also not faced it in real life. So maybe having a 10 by 10 foot version of that floating in front of me would freak me out. I'm also guessing that you're not a fan of Mike Wachowski. Well, I am, but he's supposed to be silly. Like that's the, that's the thing he's supposed to, he's not the scary monster. He's supposed to be silly. Well, he's supposed to be scary. He just wasn't very good at it. Yeah, because his design's not scary. Like I would, I was supposed to be in the NBA. I just didn't grow to be six foot ten. Like it's the the design is important to me. But in in the place of the beholder, I actually love the idea of mind flares. Um, it brings all the stuff that I'm sort of touching on with the beholder in to me a far more realistic way. You, I love this idea of D&D having a Cthulhu-type outer gods mythos to it. It's really cool to me, the magic of, like, aliens and stuff. And in the modern, the more modern version of D&D having these sort of beholder and um, mind flare, abolith-type creatures from Cthulhu myth, I really love. And the mind flares to me are the best version of that. Having the tentacled faces and these hooded kind of cult symbology to it. It's really creepy. It's really otherworldly. Um, and to me, in a game where I often play a fighter a physical brawler, some sort of physical attacker, mind flares kill me almost every time because they're all this psychic energy and they're in your head and planting memories and stuff and manipulating with your mind and taking over control of you if you don't have the right stats. It creates a really, really interesting game, in my opinion. Matthew's done it really well in the game that we've been playing with our friends, where it throws in this screwball of not being able to trust what you see because they can manipulate this reality. And I think that that's probably the most terrifying and suspense-building aspect of D&D, where I often build my character to be ready to turn a corner and get into a fight and attack. But what if that corner is not actually there? What if that person you're attacking is actually an innocent person? Like we had an episode in our D and D where my character essentially became a mass murderer 
because he thought he was fighting bad guys and he was actually fighting innocent people because of a mind flare. And so that sort of stuff is actually real world freaky to me. And I love that additional suspense in my D&D games. The mind flare is awesome. The first experience I had with it was not in D&D. It was in Demon Souls, the Tower of yeah. Latria. I started it, and within like three or four minutes, one of those mind flares killed me. And it was like, holy crap, the stupid tentacle face, Cthulhu-looking things pissing me off. Uh, but mind flares are for sure one of the creepiest and ugliest and most iconic D&D monsters. Unlike, you know, the Beholder and some of these other ones, they are inspired by you know, the Cthulhu myth, but I think it really works for them. And it feel, and they still feel unique because Cthulhu is something that you are not supposed to be able to comprehend. You can comprehend the physical essence of what the mind flare is showing you, but comprehending like the whole reality of it is what breaks people's minds within the game. So they are for sure, like you said, that example of somebody killing all these people and it actually being regular people. It's just an awesome idea. It's using psionic abilities to mess with people it has so much potential in, in making interesting games. Uh, and the Mind Flayer is one of the best ways to do that. So great pick. One of my honorable mentions for sure. Yeah, so that's that's my li- last pick. Would it, um, what was your list and your honorable mentions? So I went with... Well, we had Tiamat as the goat above. I went with the Displacer Beast, the Mimic, the Gelatinous Cube, and the Beholder. That's right. I went really original today. And my honorable mention were Mind Flayers, the Owlbear, the Rust Monster. And I went with one specific monster. And I I know this is from the movie, but Thimberchod or the Fat Red Dragon from the D&D movie is just amazing. Yeah. It's just so great. Yeah, that's so great. Um, <laughs> my list was Tiamat, Goat Above. I had Owlbear. I had Mimics. I had Mind Flares. And I had Knolls. And I have three honorable mentions that I don't... Oh, no, two that haven't been mentioned. One that has been. Um, obviously, Beholder was on my honorable mention. I have Cobalts, the Dragon People. A really cool twist on um, Dragon Lore. Uh and then I have the Lich, um, which I think was invented by D&D. Um, I'm not 100% sure, like a zombie, wizard-type, undead uh, warlock, but the Lich is another really scary, magical beast that you you run into um, that I think adds another dimension to your game. So... Thank you for coming on this adventure. All you Bills, Phils, Nannies, and Does with us. Um, thank you for indulging in our D&D talks. We hope that this has inspired your imagination. Um, maybe you guys can get out there and go play D&D. If not, at least give the movie a watch because it's actually a really good movie. Uh, shout out to Chris Pine, the most underrated of the Hollywood Chris's. Um He's always the most charming dude in every single movie. But if we've left out any monsters that you love and that you want to 
talk about, please reach out to us on Instagram, on Facebook, on our website. We love to hear from all you Bills, Phils, Nannies, and Does. And until next time, stay great and bleed on.